Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. The title of my talk uh, this morning is in the words of the Lord Jesus to his disciples in Mark chapter 11, verse 22. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. But before we get on to it, let me uh, start with a story of a little boy who was sick on Palm Sunday, who, stayed, who had to stay home from church with his mother. His father returned from church holding a palm branch. The little boy was curious and asked his father, why do you have that palm branch? You see, the father replied, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him. So we got palm branches today. The little boy replied, oh, dang, that's so unfair. The one Sunday I miss church is the Sunday that Jesus shows up. Palm Sunday refers to Jesus' very public entrance into Jerusalem, celebrated with great fanfare. Uh, This event and others from Mark chapter 11 all the way to chapter 16 occur in or very close to Jerusalem, centering around the temple as Jesus openly confronts the religious authorities there. As we come to Mark 11, we're now in the final week of our Lord's earthly life, also known as the Passion Week, the events of his suffering and death. And it begins uh, with his triumphal entry as he moves westward from the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem during Passover, which of course celebrates Israel's deliverance from Egypt. The population uh, at this time expands significantly with pilgrims arriving from all over the world. Also at this time, messianic expectations run very high. It was believed that the Messiah would appear on this mountain in the last days. This event is obviously important as it is recorded in all of the four Gospels. With his arrival, the die is cast. There's no turning back for Jesus as he openly announces himself to the world as the long-awaited Messiah. A a departure from his usual MO, if you've been observing in the book of Mark, of avoiding the crowds and maintaining a low profile. He makes arrangements to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey rather than on a mighty stallion, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It is a powerful symbol that he will triumph, not by taking power, but by losing it. He will triumph, not by inflicting suffering as a conqueror, but by, but by, but by suffering himself. He will triumph, not by wielding a sword, but by donning the servant's towel. towel. He will triumph, not by asserting his rights, but laying them down as the suffering servant. The irony of this scene is stupendous. Here is God in the flesh riding on a humble donkey in humility and in simplicity, not in pride and not in pomp. Getting caught in the excitement of the moment, the crowd spread their cloaks, their leaves, Branches on the road, shouting praises from Psalm 118. Hosanna! 
The Hebrew word, which literally means the word that we sung a moment ago, which literally means save, I pray. Hosanna, save, I pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a reference not to the Messiah, but to people who enter the temple sanctuary. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord today as you come into God's presence. It is unlikely the crowds grasp the significance of the messianic undertones in Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. However, what follows is a complete anticlimax. The whole scene fizzles out. The crowd vanishes as mysteriously as they appeared. Mark tells us Jesus goes into the temple, inspects it, and then... He returns to Bethany with the twelve, where they had been prior because it was late. What's that about? A Bible commentator by the name of Edwards asserts that Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. All of that excitement, all of that shouting, all of that celebrating was really noisy gong, if you like. But this boring ending, this anticlimax ending to Jesus' dramatic entry into Jerusalem also sets the scene for one of the most controversial miracles performed by Jesus the following day when he and the twelve return back to the temple in Jerusalem. On their way, Jesus gets hungry But he sees a fig tree in the distance and walks towards it in the hope of finding figs. But all that's that's there is leaves. And this is what Jesus says in verse 14. He said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. So Jesus wanted it. Jesus said it loud enough intentionally for the disciples to hear. The next day, Mark tells us that the fig tree is dead, withered from the roots. Why this outburst from Jesus? Is this an outburst from Jesus? This is the only miracle of Jesus that brings death, not life. What makes Jesus' action even more outrageous is that Mark tells us that the fig tree was unfruitful because it was not the season for figs. What? Can you blame Kalisner, a Jewish professor and historian of Jewish literature, for writing that Jesus' act was a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong? Atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell accused Jesus of vindictive fury for his attack on the tree for not producing fruits out of season. Is Jesus having a bad day? What's happening here? It's the reality of bearing the sins of the world for humankind on the cross getting to him. The answer, of course, is no and no. So why did Jesus curse an innocent fig tree. The answer lies with Jesus' action at the temple courts, which comes immediately after. And you'll notice that this is sandwiched between the fig tree incident in an A-B-A format. In other words, 
The cursing of the fig tree is not about it being unfruitful. It's not, about, it's not because Jesus is having a bad day. But the cursing of the fig tree correlates with Jesus' action in the temple courts. So what happens there at the temple courts? Well, as soon as he enters it, you're familiar with the story, he, he drives out buyers and sellers of merchandise. And he overturns tables of money changers, teaching them, saying to them sternly, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you, you have made it into a den of robbers. And some claim because of the phrase den of robbers, Jesus was trying to reform and cleanse the temple by denouncing dishonest and unscrupulous business practices that took advantage of people. Others say Jesus was expressing his disgust that God's sacred space set aside for the purpose of prayer for nations has been desecrated by commercial activity. However, nothing in the passage suggests this. Mark simply tells us that the crowd was amazed at his teaching. That is, they were not so much applauding Jesus' action as they were baffled by Jesus' action. They were amazed. They were going, what are you doing? What's this all about, Jesus? So why did Jesus do what he did? Well, his action was largely symbolic, and it was designed to make an announcement of God's judgment against the temple. That's what he was doing. He was announcing God's judgment against the temple. In other words, the fig tree symbolizes the temple. What happened to the fig tree, in other words, will happen to the temple. That's Jesus' message to the disciples. So what I did with the fig tree, that is what God is going to do to the temple. The Old Testament prophets often used the fig tree as a symbol of judgment. For instance, Jeremiah, in a scathing denunciation of Judah, said in Jeremiah 8, verse 13, There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. The temple had become a nationalistic symbol that made the Jews superior. They've made them feel superior compared to the other nations. And that is what Jesus is getting at when he quotes from Isaiah 57 verse 6 about my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations mean. Access to God is by grace and is freely available to all peoples from all nations. That was God's purpose right from the start, but the Jews had made the temple about them exclusively. They had made their, the covenant that God established with them by grace about them exclusively. An attitude that Christians are also guilty of adopting. We are God's people, and therefore, as God's people, we're entitled to certain things. We are blessed, and the rest of you are cursed. Furthermore, the temple had degenerated into a false hiding place where the Jews were deceived into believing that no matter how they lived, God will turn a blind eye to them and bless them because they're God's chosen ones. 
Garland, another Bible commentator, a scholar, sums it up best. Jesus' prophetic action and words attacked a false trust in the efficacy of the temple's sacrificial system. That which has been set up to be holy to God has been perverted. And Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 11. You have made it into a den of robbers to make his point. But you need, to read, you need to read Jeremiah 17 to fully appreciate what he means. And the context and the, and the reference there, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 15. And I'll just read excerpts from it, from verses 3 to 4 and 9 to 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will li- let you live in this place Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. We have the temple of the Lord. We have the temple of the Lord. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're saved. We're saved to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So that's the context of the phrase den of robbers. In short, the purpose of Jesus' action in the temple was not to reform it. It was not to cleanse it. And in many of the versions of our Bible, it's, that, that passage is headed up, headed up by, by the phrase, Jesus cleanses the temple. That is not true. He's not cleansing the temple. He's not reforming it. He is laying an axe at the root of the temple as an institution. Just like the fig tree, the temple is barren and no longer fit for God's use. In the parable of the tenants of the vineyard in chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, which we will not go into, makes the same point. The glory days of the temple will come to an end. Now, the disciples would have, at the very least, understood what Jesus was saying about God's impending judgment on Israel and the temple. Whether they believed it or not, that's another thing. But they, they comprehended what Jesus was saying. Now, to say that they're in absolute shock and shattered at this point in time is an understatement. See, the temple is a monument of immense cultural and religious significance, greater than the Notre Dame Cathedral, just to give it a bit of perspective, right? Remember when when there was a fire at at Notre Dame? (laughs) There was a worldwide reaction and sadness at the tragedy. Now, the demise of the temple has much greater significance than that. So they're confused. Their minds are spinning. When is this going to be? What do you mean the temple is going to be destroyed? Here's Jesus' response. Have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. 
Jesus is telling the disciples, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling. Don't freak out. Do not freak out. But have faith in God. Trust God in what he's doing. The obsolete temple sacrificial system will be destroyed along with the temple. That is what Jesus is referring to with the word mountain. Not one stone of the temple will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down, Jesus would say later in his final temple discourse in, uh, in Mark chapter 13, verse 2. The old covenant will end, but it will be replaced with a new one, a superior one of which he will be the mediator by means of his death on the cross, his own blood, not the blood of animals slaughtered by the high priest on the day of atonement. The temple veil that was split from top to bottom at the precise moment when Jesus breathed his last alludes to this. Anyone who wants to have a relationship with God can, but it will be based on faith in him. Jesus alone is the only access to God. The focal point of God's presence among the people, not the temple anymore. It will, be sh it will shift from the temple to himself. Through faith in him that is sustained by grace, by God's favor, and characterized by forgiveness on a vertical and horizontal level, humanity will be able to access God's presence without barriers, without limitations, anywhere, anytime, and they can offer their prayers with the absolute assurance that God will hear and answer their prayers. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I know what I'm saying to you is absolutely preposterous and make me sound like a nutter, but have faith in God. Trust him. Trust me, even though what I'm saying to you doesn't quite make sense to you. Have faith in God. That is Jesus. That was Jesus' plea to his disciples. That is Jesus' plea to us, especially when we cannot see and understand what he's up to. When things that happens to us, or things, or when things that happen in the world that perplexes us greatly, that troubles us greatly, like what's happening in Afghanistan. If you're not perplexed, if you're not troubled, then uh, you might need to see a doctor. It's horrific what's going on there. Horrific especially for women. I see the desperation of the people just throwing their children over. Take them, take them, because they're safer with you than with us staying in Afghanistan. I mean, can you sense that, the desperation there? I'm willing to part with my child and give them over to you, total strangers, but you know what? You are a safer bet than the Taliban, troubling. And, in it, and it is in these moments that God, that Jesus' plea with us is even more significant because that's when our faith is tested, right? God, I, I don't understand what's going on. What, what you're saying doesn't make sense. What's happening in my life is not making sense. And that's when we need faith in God. Most. Not when we understand everything. 
Not when life is cozy, not when life is without pain and suffering. It's when things don't make sense. That's when Jesus' plea becomes even more significant and more important. Have faith in God. Yes, Paul did make the assertion that out of faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love in 1 Corinthians 13. But that does not mean that Paul is diminishing the necessity and the importance of faith. In Romans 1.17, he stressed that the righteous will live by faith in God. The author of Hebrews goes further and said it is impossible, impossible to please God without faith. If we do not have faith, we are not pleasing God. That those that God esteemed in the Old Testament and regarded as righteous were those who trusted him despite everything to the contrary. And Paul says it very succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. In Galatians 2.20, the life I live and the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Having exercised our faith in Christ for our salvation, Paul tells us that we're to keep exercising our faith. That the exercise of our faith doesn't just apply in the context of our salvation, but it applies to every area of life. We're to walk by faith as a lifestyle. Andy Stanley writes, Faith or trust is at the center of every healthy relationship. As trust goes, so goes the relationship. A break in trust signals a break in the relationship. Sin was introduced to the world through a choice by Adam and Eve not to trust in God. In the Garden of Eden, humanity's relationship with God was broken when Eve and Adam quit trusting. God has been on a quest ever since to re-engage with mankind in a relationship characterized by trust. Just as humankind's relationship with God was destroyed through a lack of faith, so it would be restored through an expression of the same. Makes perfect sense. At its core, Christianity is an invitation to re-enter relationship of trust with the Father. At the cross, sin was forgiven, and we were invited to trust. It makes perfect sense that salvation comes by faith, not obedience. Think of Abraham, whose trust in God was so special to God that he credited it to him as righteousness. Walking by faith, again, is simply living as if God is who he says he is, and he will do everything he has promised to do. As a person's confidence in God grows, he or she matures. Faith, as Stanley defines it, is the growing confidence that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised to do. I couldn't say it any better. You might recall the disciples' failure in casting out an evil spirit. Remember that? Out of a boy back in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 32. Remember that? Looked at that, I think. And they asked Jesus privately why they couldn't drive out the evil spirit. And Jesus replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move 
from here to there, and it will move. And the mountain here that in context that Jesus is referring to is the boy with the evil spirit uh, possessing him. Nothing will be impossible for you. So that was Jesus' reply. He puts his finger on what? On their, on the littleness of their faith as the reason why the evil spirit could not be driven out. Now, Jesus' words, I don't know if you know, to sound very, very confusing and contradictory at first glance. The reason why the mountain, and, and it's a figure of speech, the word mountain, that which is impossible, extremely difficult. The reason why the mountain wouldn't move, why the boy's problem remain is the littleness of your faith, right? You following? But if you possess faith, what? As little, as small, as a mustard seed, and that was a common idiom that referred to something unusually small. Have you seen the seed of a mustard seed? The seed of a mustard? It's very, very tiny. So what is, what is Jesus saying? You, you can't cast the evil spirit out because of the littleness of your faith. But if your faith is as little as a mustard seed, you will drive it out. <laughs> what is he saying? It sounds contradictory until you realize Jesus is not pointing to their size, to the size of their faith, which is what we often assume is the problem. He's not saying to the disciples and to us, if you only had lots and lots of faith, if you only had bigger faith, if you only had fuller faith, if you only had deeper faith, if you only had greater faith, rather he is saying it's not the size of your faith that's the issue. It has to do with who you are placing your faith in. Because if your faith is in God, that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised to do, just a little of that kind of faith will be more than sufficient. Make sense? The crux of their problem and ours is not the size of our faith, but the size of our God in our mind, or the picture that we have of our God. That's the crux of the problem. And so I like to ask you a question. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God? What's the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God? Because whatever it is, that's probably what you believe about God to be. What you understand and believe about God's character impacts us profoundly and the way we move through life and respond to mountains in our lives. What we believe about God's character impacts us profoundly through the way and the way we move through life and respond to mountains in our lives. Here's a well-used illustration. Let's say you're walking on a lake that's frozen. What's going to help you, what's going to hold you up is not the size of your faith, right? But the thickness of the ice. No matter how much faith you have, no matter how big 
your faith is, no matter how full your faith is, no matter how great your faith is, if you're walking on thin ice, it will not help you. Make sense? It will not help you. You will sink. However, if the ice is rock solid, it will hold you up even if you had little faith. It will hold you up. The issue is not your faith, but the object of your faith. Faith as small as the size of a mustard seed is more than adequate to move mountains, Jesus says, if it is in a big and good God. It is not the greatness of your faith, but the greatness and the goodness of God that ultimately matters, that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised to do. Having faith in God is ultimately about God and his trustworthiness and very little to do with us and our trustworthiness. When things don't make sense, when we are surrounded by mountains, let's remember Jesus' plea to us. Have faith in God. He's worthy of our absolute trust because he is who he says he is and he's going to do what he's promised to do. Let me conclude with Psalm 62, verses 5 to 8. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. God is trustworthy. God is worth our absolute trust in him. So your application this week, three things. Number one, meditate further on Psalm 62, verses 5 to 8. Secondly, what are the mountains in your life? Name them. Don't just be general. Name them. What are the mountains in your life presently? And commit them to the Lord by using Psalm 62, verse, verses 5 to 8 as your reference. You know, you can pray, God, alone. Lord, I realize I don't wait in silence. I realize that my hope is not from you. I realize that you're not my rock and my salvation. My job is. I put my worth and value in what I do. I derive my sense of worth and identity from my job what I own, my possession. And is that why I'm shaken? Lord, help me to rest my salvation and my sense of worth in you. Yeah, I'm just giving an example how you could use Psalm and pray and apply it and personalize it. And number three, what are the treasures in your life? Name them and consecrate them to the Lord. God blesses us, but sometimes what he blesses us with displaces him as God in our lives, as the most important in our lives. The treasures that he gives us becomes the treasure. And it's an appropriate time to say, Lord, I give you back these treasures. I consecrate these treasures you have blessed me with back to you. 
And I will keep my eyes on you and put my faith in you. Let us pray. Lord, when you said those words to the disciples, have faith in God, you had no illusions about how, how the disciples would respond and how we would respond. When you said to them and to us, have faith in God, you are fully aware that we will fail to do exactly that. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace toward us. However, that does not mean that your plea to us is to be taken lightly. But as we see in the life of the disciples, you will be there ahead of us. You will be there to help us cultivate faith in God because eventually we do see the disciples overcoming their fears, overcoming their doubts like Thomas and Peter. They all overcame their cynicism, their unbelief. And it was through you, Lord Jesus, making an appearance to them, reassuring them. And you were with them for 40 days. And that is what is going to help us have faith in you, your presence in our lives. So we turn to you. We do not turn to ourselves. We do not rely on our worthiness, our trustworthiness to have faith in you. We rely on your trustworthiness to cultivate faith in you. Help us have faith in you. We're like that, Father. God, we, we, we cry out to you. Help us. I want to believe, but help me. With our un- help me with my unbelief. Help us with our unbelief. And thank you that you hear our prayers. Motivate us, Lord. Speak to us. Help us cultivate faith in you. Because we sure need it in the days ahead, in the weeks ahead, in the months ahead, in the years ahead. Because we're going to come into situations where our faith will be severely tested. Help us cultivate faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.